Hey, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, online, we have audio versions of all of our podcasts available on our website, faithonhill.com, on Apple Podcasts, and on Spotify. And on those platforms, you just have to search Faith on Hill. Now, we also have video versions available. Sunday mornings, we have a live stream on our, fa- on our Facebook page and our website. The video versions stay up on our Facebook page as well. We have other podcasts, including the 20-Minute Bible Study, the Starting Points Podcast, and the Talk About Anything Longform Podcast. We meet throughout the week in small groups, and you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. And we pray together. In our small groups, we pray together. On Sunday mornings in person, we pray together. We make prayer not just an afterthought. It's not like, you know, I say a prayer maybe to start the service or to end the service, but it's not just me. People have the chance to pray, and we do pray. And so if you need things prayed for, email me, adam at faithonhill.com. Let us know, and we would love to pray with you and pray for you. Now, if you are watching or listening to this Sunday morning, you know, 10.30 a.m. before Thanksgiving, it is not too late to come out to Sidesgiving. Sidesgiving is a church lunch after service today. Uh, We are having uh, turkey sandwiches, and then people are bringing holiday side dishes. You are welcome to come. You may say, well, I don't have anything to bring. Just bring yourself. You can hit pause on this. You can Get over to our building in Oak Grove, and you can hang out with us and then listen to this later. We'd love to see you. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to get to know you. We hope that you have a fantastic Thanksgiving this week. I know that Thanksgiving can be hard. Thanksgiving and any holiday like this can be hard because it reminds us of those who are no longer with us and those who are still here but we are estranged from, uh, those who we have broken relationships with. And so, I just want you to know that we're thinking of you, we're praying for you, you're not alone. We know that this is a hard season. Now, uh, next Sunday we'll finish our study in the Gospel of Matthew, and today if you have a Bible, turn it to Matthew chapter 25 as we finish this sort of three-week mini-series as Jesus teaches his disciples about the final things, the end times, the end of the world. Today we're going to talk about the justice of God. Now, I don't know what your background or experience or frame of reference is when it comes to the end times, biblical prophecy, the final things. The big theological word for this is eschatology, the study of the last things. I don't know what your, what your experience has been. If you uh, have no background with this, and maybe the last couple weeks as we've been going through these chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, this is like the first time you've really been exposed to this. Uh, Maybe you grew up in a church that made a big deal about this kind of thing. I I did. Uh, Maybe you grew up in a church that did no no kind of talking about any sort of thing like this. Uh, I've known people like that. Uh, maybe it was one of those things that was like mentioned, but you were like, it's just so confusing. I have no interest in dealing with that. Certainly there have been churches and generations of the church that have been that way. 
Maybe you just read the Left Behind books or you've heard people talk about them. They were the big cultural touch point for this subject for a, quite a while. Whatever, whatever your background or experience is with the idea of the end of the world from a biblical perspective, I want you to know this. When I said a minute ago that we were going to talk about the justice of God, justice is a key to understanding end times theology. Theology is, is just a you know, big word for studying the things of God. We have all kinds of different branches or fields of theology. Uh, pneumonology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's the study of, of worship, uh, doxology. Uh, there's the study of the end times, eschatology. Uh, there's the study of uh, the church, ecclesiology. I don't know why we can't find more easy, uh, less Latin-sounding words to use, but those are the words they use. And eschatology is the theology of the end of the world. And Bible prophecy, the end times, the rapture, it all appeals to people for a lot of different reasons. There's mystery involved, and some of us really like a good mystery. You know, it's, it's mentioned here. It's hinted at there. As you read through the scriptures, there will be a reference, an element, a callback. And if you're somebody who likes a good mystery, there is a mysterious element to these things. And yet at the same time, there's also a lot of assurance. I love when the Bible's like this. You know, when, when two things that seem totally opposed to each other are both true at the same time. I love those sort of tensions. The assurance of eschatology. Because we look around and we wonder, where is it all going? How is it going to end? I, I love to build playlists. Spotify, Apple Music, whatever music service you use. I love curating and building playlists. I, I build them for myself, what I enjoy listening to. I build playlists around the kind of music my kids like. I build playlists that my wife enjoys. I build playlists for the before and after music at church. I, I build playlists for specific seasons, you know. Uh, we, we generally have the Beach Boys in heavier rotation in the summer than we do in the dead of winter. Uh, I build playlists for specific times of year. Like, on my Apple Music, all of my Christmas playlists, at the end of Christmas, I go in, I rename them, and I put a Z at the beginning of the name, and they just drop down because my playlists are in alphabetical order. And I got to go through this week and, and rename them, take the Z out, so they pop back up to the C place in the alphabetical order. Because I've got Christmas playlists, and they're for this time of year, and I'm ready. And I, and I always tweak them and add new stuff as new Christmas music is released, or I discover some old gem that I wasn't aware of. I love putting playlists together. I love curating playlists. And one of the things that I love is 80s music. I love 80s music. And you might think, well, Adam, that's because you were born in the 80s. Yeah, you'd think that, wouldn't you? But you know, the funny thing about being born in a generation is like you're a little kid and you come of age musically in the next decade, generally speaking. So in a lot of ways, you'd think I'd be all about 90s music. Plus, I grew up in sort of, at that time, a sheltered Christian home. Uh, so the music that we listened to was Christian music. We did not listen to 80s secular music 
at all. I didn't know who like any of the major artists or singers of the 80s were until the late 90s. I discovered any music that was released before like 1994, 1995, I discovered on my own. There are people that think I like old country music because of my grandpa. No, I like old country music because of me. I like 80s music because of me. Well, and the, the movie The Wedding Singer, which came out in 1996. And uh, it was the first movie I saw more than once in the theater. In fact, I think I ended up seeing it three times in the theater. I loved it so much. And the music in there, I was like, this first time I heard The Smiths. It's the first time I, I heard so many other 80s bands that it was like, but The Smiths, I remember specifically, it was like, what is this? This is amazing. And one of the things about 80s music is a constant theme in a lot of 80s music, especially the stuff coming out of Britain, is are they going to drop the bomb? You know, 99 Red Balloons is this charming little bubblegum pop song about nuclear holocaust. And then we thought we got rid of all that. And we didn't really write songs like that. And I'm curious if that's going to change as the situation returns I mean, we had this thing this last week where all of a sudden it was like, did the Russians just shoot missiles at Poland? And, and the North Koreans have been shooting missiles over Japan. And is one going to accidentally land in Tokyo? You know, there's this whole thing. How is this all going to end? The Bible gives us assurance. Assurance of how things will end. That, that God has a plan. That God has a purpose. That God knows what is going to happen? And we can look around and we can worry because we don't know, but God does. So the assurance of Bible prophecy is appealing to people. Some people really love symbolism and the Bible prophecy is full of symbolism. The book of Daniel, symbolism. Ezekiel, symbolism. Revelation, symbolism. Genesis, symbolism. You don't think of Genesis as a big Bible prophecy thing, but let me tell you something. If you want to understand the book of the Revelation, Read Genesis. It's a freebie. You can have that one for free. It also, let's be honest, appeals to the conspiratorial. The same kind of people, one of my favorite characters ever in television is Dale Gribble. If you've ever seen King of the Hill, it's a cartoon from the 90s. It's not for kids. It's like, you know, the Simpsons, that kind of thing. And Dale Gribble is this character, and, and King of the Hill is set in Texas, and Dale Gribble is this, like, classic redneck conspiracy theorist. And he has, the, you know, that's a chopper, Hank. It's a UN chopper, and they're coming to get us. And there are the conspiratorial, those whose brains just immediately assume the worst, assume that everything is a plot, assume that everything is, is, is a conspiracy to get us all. By the way, in most of those circumstances, I just firmly believe in the incompetence of people. And so, you know, do you believe in that conspiracy? No. Why? Is it because people are evil? No, people are totally evil. And if they were competent, maybe they would conspire together to do that thing. But most people are not. And if you've ever been around government bureaucracy, you know that they don't have their act together enough to do the stuff that you think that they're able to do. So, it does appeal to the conspiratorial. But as much as there's that negative aspect, there's also the glorious. When you read Bible prophecy in the end times and you see Jesus victorious, Jesus powerful, Jesus coming strong, and, and in his glory, in his victory, oh, I love the end of the book of the Revelation. When Jesus returns, when Jesus sets things right, it's my favorite part. 
Jesus is the main focus. There's all these different reasons why people get into Bible prophecy, why it appeals to people, but Jesus is the main focus and his coming justice, what he described earlier in the Gospel of Mark as the renewal of all things, is far more important than whatever the mark of the beast means. It's far more important than if there's a rapture or when it will happen. It's far more important than any of these symbols and their meaning. Jesus is the main point of Bible prophecy. And his coming justice is a key to understanding. You might remember two weeks ago, the disciples said, what's a sign of your coming? And Jesus starts listing things that people would associate with a sign of the end of the world. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, natural disasters, plagues, things that you're like, oh, this is the apocalypse. And Jesus says, this is is nothing. This is just part of a broken world. The justice of God is what matters. That you're so focused on these like signs and symbols that you miss what they're, if there are signs and symbols, what they're signaling, which is the coming justice of God. And that's far more important than whatever 666 means or who the Antichrist is or any of the stuff that the conspiratorial and the symbolist and the, the person into mystery wants to get into. Now, Jesus, he's, it's still the same teaching. He's been teaching uh, the disciples in these chapters and we've been going over it. It happened in you know, one afternoon, but we've been taking a few weeks to go through it. In chapter 25 of the Gospel of Mark, verse 14, Jesus says again, I'm just going to give you another example. It will be like a man. This is speaking of the end of the world, essentially, his coming judgment, his coming, the, the coming end of these things. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. And to one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability, and then he went on his journey. So he says, hey, there's this guy. He's got money. He's got employees. He's got people with him, and he's got to go on a trip. So he says, here's your responsibilities. Here's your roles. You take care of these things. I have to go take care of business over here. The man who had received five bags of gold went out and put his money to work and gave five more bags. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the one who had received one bag went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. And after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five bags. Master, you entrusted me with five bags and see, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will now put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came and he said, master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things and I put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came And said, Master, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went out, and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And his master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I had not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. And then you should have put the money on deposit with bankers so that it would have at least returned interest when I came back. So take the bag from him 
and give it to the one who has ten. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them and thrown that worthless servant outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Interesting. Uh, he says something you know, similar uh, earlier, you know, talking about uh, the servant who was beating, this was this a couple weeks ago, servant who was beating other servants, thinking the master's gone, I'm just going to drink with the drunkards and I'm going to beat my fellow servants. And Jesus says the same thing about him, the master will come and he'll throw him out with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's at the end of chapter 24. What's this all about? Bags of gold, deposits, interest? What's going on here? I thought this was about the end of the world, not a business lesson. What this is telling me, what this is telling me is that the justice of God is fair. The justice of God is fair. Romans chapter 14 says that for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Now you might say, Adam, wait a minute. I thought I was saved by faith in Jesus alone. I'm going to answer that question in a minute. But for now, I want to focus on this idea of what the servants were held accountable for. The servant with five bags gained five more. He was told, well done. The servant with two bags gained two more. He was told, well done. Did you notice that Jesus did not give more commendation for the servant who had more profit? Well, that servant gained five bags of gold. That servant only gave two, but they both got the same reward. Well done. You get to come into my kingdom. You get to share in my happiness. The, the response is exactly the same for both servants, even though the results for both of their lives were very different. Why is that? And I, I believe it's because the justice of God is fair. That they responded to what the master had done equally as that it had been given to them. They responded to what the master had done equally as it had been given to them. There are people who will go around and they will say, oh my goodness, look at that person. Look at how much they have done for God. They are true spiritual heroes. And maybe they are. I don't know. But I have suspected for a long time, and I've, I've thought this, and I, I firmly believe this to be true, that there are people that you and I have never heard of, will never heard of this side of eternity, who have been given two bags, let's just say, two bags of spiritual gold. And with those two bags of spiritual gold, they have used every ounce of it for God's purposes. And then there are the people who get all the attention, all of the recognition, and maybe we look at them and we say, oh my goodness, what have they done? And what we don't realize is that they were given 10 bags and they only used five. And of course they did more because they had five to use. And we see this person over there that uses like two bags and we're like, oh, they only had two bags. Oh, didn't do as much. That person had five or six. Look what they did. And we don't see that there's like four or five unused. So I'm saying comparisons are, are bad business. I have no interest in doing that. 
But when we say, oh my goodness, this person has so much and they do with so much, it's not about how much they earned. The one with five and the one with two had the same response. It's about what you did with what you had. Now, I believe that the justice of God will be fair. The justice of God will be fair. I believe that on the day of judgment, I believe this, on the day of judgment, there will be no one who stands before God who they say to God, this is unfair because I did not have the chance to repent. That's my personal belief. I could be wrong about that. But it's my personal belief. Now, there are those who have more chances than others. Certainly that is true. If you live to be 80, 90 years old, you had more chances than the person who dies young. That is absolutely true. But everybody had a chance. That's my belief. Now, I'll admit that that belief gets tested sometimes. I, I am a, a big reader of history, all kinds of history. And, and I'm well aware, I'm well aware that on this continent, North America, even longer, South America, that there were beautiful souls that did not hear the gospel message for over 1,500 years. I, I'm, I'm not kidding myself that I have zero evidence of the gospel of Jesus reaching these shores prior to 1492. And I know that Columbus didn't discover America. First of all, there were already people here, so he didn't discover anything. And even if you want to just say he was the first European, there were Vikings, Viking ancestors of mine who got here before him. Okay, So he was just the first guy for whom it caught on. right? Uh, but but this idea of what about them? What about people that lived here in the Americas prior to Europeans coming? And not that Europeans were the only people that knew about Jesus. We were far from the only Christians. We were just the first to bring Christianity here. I don't know. I don't know. And, and I know, by the way, I know that talking about that, I know that the, the history of, quote-unquote, bringing Christianity to the Americas is a complicated subject. So if you're going, well, they, they did it, you know, it was a conquest. It was, yeah, I get it. Colonization, all of that, very bad. And I'm, I'm totally happy to have a more in-depth conversation about that. But the point of what we're talking about right now is what of those who have never heard? And in faith, I trust that God is fair because the Jesus that I know, the God that I have experienced, the Holy Spirit, the Holy, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who dwells in me and who has worked in my life has shown me the fairness of God. In fact, there are times where I think God's incredibly unfair because I don't deserve the grace I've been given. And that's not fair that I'm not being judged, but yet I've received the grace of God. And so I trust him. I take him at his word when he says he is fair. When every knee will bow and nobody's going to go and say, this was not right. 
And in faith, I believe that. And I don't think I need to make up stories as Joseph Smith did or that I need to make excuses in my theology as there's uh, different theologies that try to explain away this whole idea. I just think I have to live in this reality that there are those who take what Jesus gives them and do nothing with it. That servant who had the bag of gold, Jesus is saying you could have at least deposited it in the bank. You could at least place your faith in me and then do nothing else with your life. But you didn't even do that. You just buried it in the ground. You did nothing with it. The justice of God is fair. And each of us will give an account one day for what we have done. And we can look around and say, well, why does God have to judge me? Well, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We can look around the world and we can see the war, the atrocities. Every city that the Ukrainians take back from the Russians, we find more evidence of atrocity, of torture, of brutalization, of war crimes. We know of the evils that go on in North Korea. If you're looking for a book to read and, and you can stomach it, the book Nothing to Envy is a fantastic account of life for average North Koreans. It's horrible. It's terrible. By the way, Christians are working in North Korea and I'm thankful for it. I know that the gospel is there. But there are places, there are terrible places where people suffer. Where is their justice? As we brought slaves across the Atlantic for hundreds of years, as slave trades existed before that, you know, when the, when the uh, Portuguese and the English and the Spanish and all of the different uh, European powers that came and brought slaves from Africa, we didn't create the slave trade there. It was already going on. So the evil of slavery was happening before we got there. We made it exponentially worse. And then when we brought slaves here, we found new ways to do sinful things to people. Where's the justice for that? Where's the justice for human trafficking that never goes unpunished? Where's the justice for corruption that never goes unpunished? Where's the justice for all of the things that people get away with. Oh, you know, you're not going to get away with that. Some, and in fact, a lot of people do. Where is the justice for the abuser who never has a consequence for, for the rapist that gets away with it? Where is the justice? That is what Jesus is bringing, is justice for the undealt with sin of the world. And so it's actually hopeful for those of us who who are spared it because we can say, oh, good, that will be dealt with. And at the same time, I know that I deserve it too. And I only am escaping it by the grace of God, the undeserved favor of God, because Jesus, when he died on the cross, took my place and took the penalty that I deserved. So the key to understanding the theology of the end times is understanding that justice is the goal. People think, oh, God's just going to come and he's going to do all these terrible things to people at the end of the world because he's really angry and he's kind of spiteful or something. No, it's because he's angry at the wickedness that has been going on. He has seen everything. He knows every wrong. And he demands that things be held to account. 
And then he tells another story. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So he's using an example that they would have all been familiar with. You know, you get the herds together and they get mixed up. The sheep get mixed up with the goats. And when it's time for shearing season, you have to separate the sheep to get sheared and the goats go over there. You know, you get milk from the goats. You get wool from the sheep. Uh, Maybe the goats you're going to kill for food and the sheep you're going to get some other stuff. You got to separate them out. And so he says, just like your shepherd does that, the Son of Man is going to separate from all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations the sheep from the goats. And he says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in? When were you needing clothes, and we clothed you? When did, you, when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whenever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's so important to note, by the way. Hell is not the kingdom of the devil. That's what modern fiction has tried to depict. That hell is the kingdom, the dominion of the devil. He has like a headquarters there. And he's in charge of the underworld. And all the bad people go down there. What Jesus is saying is actually kind of a radical departure from the common thought of not just Greek religion, but all religions up to that point. That the underworld is not ruled by the God of the underworld. That Satan himself is not the God of the underworld. No, he is himself subject to the one and only true God. And that hell, Hades, the place of the damned, was not prepared for people. It was prepared for Satan and his angels, his fallen followers. But that is where those who reject Jesus will go. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of one of these... You did not do for me, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, remember I said a minute ago that it would be fair to say, wait a minute, I thought we were saved by faith in Jesus alone, saved by faith alone through the grace of God alone. There is no works that we can do, no checklist that we can do. We can't feed enough 
naked people. We can't, uh, or we can't feed enough hungry people. We can't clothe enough naked people. We can't do enough charitable good works to get to heaven. Somebody might say that. Adam, I thought that's the whole point of the gospel. That's what makes Christianity different than all other religions. What's going on? Why is it that Jesus here seems to be saying that you do good works to get into heaven? Take those bags of gold that God gives you and do something with them to get into heaven. Go and feed somebody. Go and clothe somebody. Go visit somebody in prison to get into heaven. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? I don't believe so. In the book of James, in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 18, James says, hey, you say, I'll show you my faith, and I don't need to show you any deeds. And James says, I'm going to show you my faith by my deeds. And what he's saying is, there's people that say, I believe. And he says, that's good for you. You know who else believes? The devil believes. The fallen angels believe. The demons believe. Satan believes that Jesus is God. Satan knows that for a fact. They tremble at that fact. Meaningless. You can believe in God all you want, but unless you have a genuine saving faith, what good is it? You can believe all the right things about God. What good is it to be right about all your theology and be wrong about Jesus? What good is it to be right about all of the, you know, I know all of the Bible facts and Bible history and I know all of these things and to not have a genuine faith in Jesus that saves from sin and death. And Jesus says, hey, there's going to be people that talk about belief, that think they're in. They were confirmed in the church when they were 13. They were baptized at some point. They went through a discipleship class. They gave some money. They did some things. They went on a mission trip. They went at a camp. Uh, they, somebody said, come forward if you want to be a Christian. And they went forward. They did something. But it made no change to their life. And so what the apostles were teaching is just a confirmation of what, James, or what Jesus himself is saying here. That at the end of all things, there will be people who come and they say, hey, I'm, I'm ready to go, Jesus. Let me into your kingdom. But on the inside, nothing has changed for them. On the outside, they look great. On the inside, on the inside, nothing has changed. The justice of God is fair. I believe that no one will come to the day of judgment and say, Oh my goodness, this is so unfair. I did not have the chance. I believe that everyone at some point in their life has the chance to respond to Jesus. Do I know how that works out? I do not. But I believe it to be true. But I also believe that the justice of God is only satisfied by real faith in Jesus. Some people treat church like fire insurance. Have you ever heard that one? I've heard this described before. 
You know, this idea like I, I believe in God and Jesus seems better than some, so I'm just going to go with this whole Christianity thing. Just in case this whole thing is real, I don't want to go to hell, so it's like fire insurance. I'm not going to go to hell where there's fire and brimstone, so I'll just believe what I think is enough so that I can go to heaven. From what Jesus is saying here, I don't know if that's how that works. From what Jesus is saying here, I don't think anyone can say they have fire insurance. From what Jesus is saying here, the only people who enter the kingdom of heaven are those who have a genuine saving faith. Now, does that mean I have to do a whole bunch of things? No, of course not. The thief on the cross, we've talked about this many times. The thief on the cross dying next to Jesus said, Lord, remember me when you enter my kingdom. And he had no time to do any good works. He only had faith. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. I believe genuinely in those who become Christians in the last days of their life and the genuineness of their faith and their conversion and their assurance of salvation. I believe that firmly. But I have warning for those who profess faith and then live as if they have none, who profess faith and then live in rebellion to God, who may even go to church, maybe even be leaders in the church, but live lives of pride, of arrogance, of bitterness. Instead of serving, they want to be served. Instead of giving, they're self-focused. I have a warning there. Jesus is having, has a warning. He says, hey, you know what? The justice of God is coming. That is the main point of all of this stuff. The coming of Jesus involves a settling of accounts. Justice for all of the wickedness that we see around us. Name an evil thing, it will be dealt with. It will be fair. And we need it dealt with ahead of time because we deserve our share in that judgment. And you might say, well, judgment, man, that's, this is a bummer thing. Like, I've already got enough guilt on me. I've already got enough things that I'm dealing with. That's why I've used the word justice. Because people hear judgment and they think of something that is uh, somebody looking down on them, somebody trying to beat down on them. Justice is this idea of fairness. And for the sins that I have done, for the sins that you have done, fairness must happen. And the only way out was that Jesus said, I will satisfy the debt by paying the price myself. And so when we stand before God, as it says in Romans, as we read a minute ago, everyone will give an account of ourselves before God. We will stand there too. But our account will be, Jesus paid my price. And I have nothing to stand before God with other than the work that Jesus did and the work that God the Holy Spirit is doing and does and has done in my life and in your life. The coming justice of God is real. The coming justice of God will be fair. The coming justice of God demands that we examine ourselves and are honest with ourselves. Do I have real saving faith? Or is is my Christianity cultural? Is my Christianity convenient? Is my Christianity something that only exists here and now? But you know what? I could, I could walk away and do something different at any point. Those are all very, very fair and valid questions, not for judging anybody, but for personal self-examination. I'm not saying this for anyone else, but I walk away from this passage Examining myself. Adam, you're a pastor, sure. But I don't want to be arrogant or foolish. Lord, 
that I would have a faith that doesn't just save me, but that has changed me. So that I don't just say words, but I live a life that reflects what you've done in my life. That I don't just say, oh, I'm, I'm forgiven and now I just wait for heaven. I'm going to sit back and wait for heaven. No, I actually believe that, that God has doing his work now too. So that I can be victorious and you can be victorious in him in, his, in this life here on earth right now. You know, I just trust that God is doing that work in people's lives People say, oh, the church is in decline. I, I think American cultural Christianity is in decline. I think there are institutions that call themselves the church that might be morally bankrupt. But the gospel of Jesus is never in decline. And people's lives are still being changed right here and right now in this very place. All we have to do is call out to him and he's still working and still moving. And I believe that firmly and fully. And so can you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that you have a blessed Thanksgiving. And I pray that the Holy Spirit of God gives joy and peace fully to your heart this week. Amen.